Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. Last episode, we explored the circumstances behind the convening of the Federal Constitutional Convention, who attended it, who was missing, and its rules. With this episode, we will begin exploring the text of the Constitution. As is the Patriot Lessons way, we will be doing this very carefully and very deliberately, line by line. Today, we will begin, and I mean begin, to explore the preamble. When I say we, I'm joined by Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett. And Sheila Guerin, thank you for your support. The preamble is immortal. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. We the people. This is a majestic phrase. Whoa, 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 Judge. You just can't jump right into the preamble. Our listeners deserve to know how it was drafted, don't they? Like the Second Continental Congress, which took great pains to draft and debate the introduction of the Declaration of Independence, surely the Constitutional Convention carefully considered this phraseology in the preamble. Okay, Mike Gerard, you're right. Our listeners deserve to know how the preamble was drafted. But as you know, that story isn't quite the story they might think it is. Quite the opposite. And that's the truth. The convention got to business in May 1787. After a couple months of debate and approval of many resolutions about what should be in the Constitution, on July 23, 1787, the Constitutional Convention established a Committee of Detail. This committee of detail was charged with the duty to, quote, prepare and report a constitution, unquote, that included what had been approved up to that point. A review of the notes of the Constitutional Convention, taken by James Madison and other delegates, reveals that many proposals were put forth, debated, and were approved or disapproved. The debates and resolutions were all over the map on the topics that were covered. One hour they were debating how Congress would be composed, the next hour they were voting on the authority of the president, and later they might be debating about the need for a Bill of Rights. It was all, well, messy. The convention needed to have a single draft that put everything together so they could review the progress already made and then continue with any changes. The Committee of Detail was given this task. The committee was chaired by John Rutledge and otherwise composed of James Wilson, Edmund Randolph, Nathaniel Gorham, and Oliver Ellsworth. James Wilson was a brilliant Scottish-born lawyer representing Pennsylvania, and he became the primary draftsman of the Committee of Details report. The report was issued August 6th. It began like this. We the people of the states of New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Rhode Island and Province Plantations, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia do ordain, declare, and establish the following constitution for the government of ourselves and our posterity. And so, not exactly the most majestic passage ever penned from the hand of man? Here, the convention was truly missing Thomas Jefferson's poetry. Moreover, the rest of what became the preamble was simply missing— the members of the convention had been debating how the government was going to function, not on the niceties of some introduction. 
About a month later, on September 8, 1787, the convention appointed yet another committee, the Committee of Style and Arrangement, to revise the draft constitution to include all the revisions made up to that point. As the name portends, Style and Arrangement, this second committee had two purposes. First, to arrange all the resolutions of the convention into a single coherent document in a logical order. And second, to make the language consistent and accurately reflect the decisions of the convention in verbiage that was appropriate for a constitution. The convention appointed five delegates to this daunting task, William Samuel Johnson, Alexander Hamilton, Governor Morris, James Madison, and Rufus King. Samuel Johnson chaired the committee. Governor Morris, a delegate from Pennsylvania, has been dubbed the penman of the Constitution because he was the primary draftsman of the final draft of the Constitution through his work on the committee. He began by... Whoa! Wait just one minute, Mike Gerard. I believe our listeners would appreciate knowing a tad bit about Mr. Gouverneur Morris before we go prancing into his text. Good point, bombastic Brent Bassett. Morris was born on January 31, 1752, at Morrisania, a fabulous family estate in what is now the Bronx. His family was very wealthy. A childhood accident burned the flesh off his right arm. Another accident involving a carriage ended with the removal of his left leg below the knee. Forevermore, he had a wooden peg. Despite this, he apparently was quite the playboy, charming and charismatic. Standing six feet in height, he towered over most others in that day and age. His half-brother, Louis Morris, signed the Declaration of Independence. Governor attended the Academy of Philadelphia, what is now the University of Pennsylvania, and he graduated from King's College, which is now Columbia. He was an eloquent speaker and amazing writer. He became a lawyer in New York and helped write New York's Constitution. An ardent patriot, he put his life where his mouth was and joined the New York militia in 1777. He also served in the New York Assembly and on New York City's Council of Safety. He was elected to the Continental Congress but lost the position in 1779 after he bluntly attacked Governor George Clinton on the floor of the Assembly. Since he was in Philadelphia for the Congress and had nothing better to do, he stayed there and worked as a lawyer and merchant. He became close to his namesake, Robert Morris, who had signed the Declaration of Independence and was also attending the Constitutional Convention. Under the Articles of Confederation, the two unrelated Morrises worked together. Robert became the superintendent of finance and Governor was his assistant. Governor's suggestion for revising the currency led to what eventually replaced the English penny, the cent. Pennsylvania appointed him to the Constitutional Convention. At the convention, he gave 173 separate speeches, more than anyone else, even though he was gone for an entire month in New York. Fellow delegate William Pierce described him. Mr. Gouverneur Moss winds through all the mazes of rhetoric and throws around him such a glare that he charms, captivates, and leads away the senses of all who hear him. With an infinite stretch of fancy, he brings to view things when he is engaged in deep argumentations that render all the labor of reasoning easy and pleasing. After the Constitution was ratified, Governor Morris replaced Thomas Jefferson as ambassador to France in 1792. 
He was there for some of the most horrifying parts of the French Revolution and was replaced by James Monroe in 1794. He took his time returning home and instead, um, visited with many European women. After he returned to New York, he was elected U.S. Senator in 1800 and served until 1803. On Christmas Day, 1809, he shocked his family and friends by announcing he was getting married, and then had the ceremony right then and there. His wife, Anne Nancy Carey Randolph, had a notorious past worthy of its own podcast. They had a child when Governor was 61, and three years later, he died at Morrisania in the very same room he was born in. Morris was fascinating. Thank you, Mike Gerard. Now, back to We the People. Morris explained that the convention gave him a skeleton of the Constitution, and he gave it muscles. But really, he was modest. The father of the Constitution himself, James Madison, acknowledged that. The finish given to the style and arrangement of the Constitution fairly belongs to the pen of Mr. Morris. The task having probably been handed over to him by the chairman, with the ready concurrence of the others. A better choice could not have been made, as the performance of the task proved. Morris was presented 23 disorganized resolutions addressing the whole array of the federal government. It was a bit like having 23 little ditties or instrumental pieces, all wonderful and completely in chaos. Or maybe more appropriately, it was a jigsaw puzzle, all tossed on the floor and, quite frankly, missing a few pieces. He brilliantly revised and polished the discordant chords and filled in the gaps of the convention's resolutions into a resounding symphonic masterpiece. Or a bit more contemporary, it was like what the Beatles did with side two of Abbey Road. The completed jigsaw puzzle was on par with the Sistine Chapel. Morris did this by adding a preamble, creating an article for each of the three branches of government, and then adding four additional articles to address other vital constitutional mechanisms such as ratification and amendments. Each article has sections that flesh out the details. In addition, the convention ordered the committee to draft a cover letter, which would accompany the Constitution back to the Congress. Madison took on that task. With regard to the preamble in particular, unlike the Declaration of Independence, which had a lengthy exposition of our first principles and the necessity of the document, as well as cause for peace and unity, the Constitution is designed to be a governing document. Any explanations and cause to action are mostly left to the cover letter. The preamble is simply a non-binding introduction to the Constitution. In fact, the Supreme Court has accurately ruled that the preamble has no independent authority. It simply explains the purpose of the Constitution. Such a non-binding introduction is common for legal documents such as contracts, wills, deeds, treaties, and governmental regulations. As such, the Committee of Style and Arrangement cut to the chase in the preamble. In fact, no preamble had even been debated at the convention. As we quoted earlier, the Committee of Details Report's preface simply listed all the states that were adopting the Constitution. Morris was all on his own. Historian Cather Brinker Bowen lays out the dilemma facing Morris in connection with the preamble and the origin of the famous phrase, We the People of the United States. The phrase, as Morris put it, was very new. On the table before him lay the convention's 23 resolves, fought over, voted upon, and many times rewritten. 
arranged under articles and sections. These articles had their own preamble, which said nothing at all about the people of the United States. What the articles had said was, We, the undersigned delegates of the states of New Hampshire, Massachusetts Bay, and so on down the list of 13, including, with more hope than judgment, the Rhode Island and Providence plantations. Yet to the committee there was little use in promising Rhode Island support to this new constitution, or Maryland's, or New York's. Better to avoid enumeration and let the various states ratify when and if they chose. Hence, we the people of the United States. Clearly, there was a logistical issue that helped lead to this phraseology. After all, Rhode Island wasn't even at the convention. But there were other ways around this dilemma that would not have been so provocative. Morris took a path that was revolutionary. Despite its non-binding nature, the preamble is very important. We the people. This is a majestic phrase. But it is not just for majesty or show. It reveals the fundamental premise upon which the Constitution rests. There is a similar phrase in the Declaration of Independence. In the Declaration, the second sentence begins with, We hold these truths to be self-evident. But notice the we in the Declaration of Independence does not refer to the people. On July 4, 1776, the we refer to the Second Continental Congress, which is composed of former colonies banded together to declare a revolution against the British Empire. Each colony had become a free and independent state, and the we refers to the Confederation of States acting in concert through the Congress. The Constitution is different in its very essence. The preamble refers to we the people. We take this for granted, but we should not. Must not. Before the Constitution was ratified, the idea of the people was a theory for some, but had never been put into practice in a continental-wide nation. For most of human history, with the exception of the Greek city-state Athens and similar short-lived small democracies, there was no people. At least not a people that had any authority. The people did not rule themselves. They were not sovereign, which is where the ultimate power rests. Instead, the sovereign were kings and nobles, religious leaders, military juntas, and similar arbitrary governors. These leaders had final control of the nation. As just one striking example, King Louis XIV of France wrote that, Kings are absolute lords, having full authority over all people, secular and ecclesiastical. Later, as a Supreme Court Justice, James Wilson explained that even in England, with its Parliament, there is no people. The British government is a despotic government. It is a government without a people. In that government, the sovereignty is possessed by Parliament. In the Parliament resides the incontrollable and despotic power which, in all governments, must reside somewhere. The constituent parts of the Parliament are the King's Majesty, the Lord's Spiritual, the Lord's Temporal, and the Commons. The King and these three estates together form the great corporation or body politic of the Kingdom. The Parliament form the great body politic of England. What then, or where, are the people? Nothing, nowhere. They are not so much as even the baseless fabric of a vision. From legal contemplation, they totally disappear. Am I not warranted in saying that if this is a just description? A government so and justly so described is a despotic government? Discarding forever divine rule and hereditary titles, Americans embraced the sovereignty of the people. Indeed, the new state constitutions that were written during or after the American Revolution 
expressly recognized this critical maxim. The Pennsylvania Constitution, which is representative of several such state constitutions, provided that all power being originally inherent in and consequently derived from the people. Therefore, all officers of government, whether legislative or executive, are their trustees and servants, and at all times accountable to them. Despite this acceptance of the sovereignty of the people, the states, not the people, controlled national policy under the Articles of Confederation. Moreover, an American people was not yet in existence. Most citizens considered their state, Virginia, South Carolina, Rhode Island, as their nation. The people were the source of legitimacy and authority for the states, but not the Articles of Confederation. Dr. David Ramsey was a South Carolina state legislator and a congressman under the Articles of Confederation and after the ratification of the Constitution. He was one of America's first and finest historians, and in 1789 he explained the change this way. The Articles of Confederation formed an agreement between the states in New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and the rest of the 13. The sovereignty was in the people. In their sovereign capacity by their representatives, they agreed on forms of government for their own security and deputed certain individuals as their agents to serve them in public stations agreeably to constitutions which they prescribed for their conduct. The world has not hitherto exhibited so fair an opportunity for promoting social happiness. It is hoped for the honor of human nature that the results will prove the fallacy of those theories which suppose that mankind are incapable of self-government. But now there was an opportunity for Americans to not only embody the sovereignty of the people in the states, but also in the federal government. At the convention, the founding generation drafted a constitution that was based upon the principle, previously unpracticed in modern government, that the government be, as Lincoln would so eloquently illuminate, of, by, and for the people. James Wilson elaborated on this fantastic transformation in his remarks before the Pennsylvania Ratifying Convention when he noted that the preamble has more force than a volume written on the subject. It renders this truth evident that the people have the right to do what they please with regard to the government. I confess I feel a kind of pride in considering the striking difference between the foundation on which the liberties of this country are declared to stand in this constitution and the footing on which the liberties of England are said to be placed. The Magna Carta of England is an instrument of high value to the people in that country, but from what source does the instrument derive the liberties of the inhabitants of that kingdom? Let it speak for itself. The king says, we have given and granted to all the free men of this our realm these liberties following to be kept in our kingdom of England forever. But here, sovereignty remains in the people at large, and by this convention they do not part with it. Rejecting the idea of maintaining a confederation of states is essential to embracing the first principles of a free and just government. Wilson explained that liberty, justice, and the rights of nature are only secure when the people govern. Indeed, it is a first principle of free and just government that the government be established by and for the people. 
I am astonished to hear the ill-founded doctrine that the states alone ought to be represented in the federal government. These must possess sovereign authority, and the people be forgot. No, let us reascend to first principles. That expression is not strong enough to do many ideas justice. Let us retain first principles. The people of the United States are now in possession and exercise of their original rights. And while this doctrine is known and operates, we shall have a cure for every disease. But wait, said the opponents of the Constitution. This is not what we bargain for. The Constitutional Convention was not called to replace the Articles of Confederation, but to amend them. There was no pretense that an entirely new document with an entirely new foundation based on the people instead of the states was the purpose of the Constitutional Convention. Truth be told, the opponents of the new Constitution, labeled with that horrible moniker, the Anti-Federalists, they had a valid complaint. The Constitution, in fact, embodied an essential shift in thinking. Historian Max Ferrand explained. The opening words of we the people remain among the most significant in the Constitution. Such a phrase would have been impossible at the beginning of the convention. It was accepted without question at the end. The convention had come together to revise the Articles of Confederation. It ended by framing an entirely new instrument, the Constitution of the United States. Eh, Ferrand exaggerates a bit. After all, some did question this significant change the Anti-Federalists. Indeed, it was so unacceptable to some of the delegates to the Constitutional Convention that they refused to sign it. Likewise, it was an anathema to some of those charged with determining whether the Constitution should be ratified. Patrick Henry, who next to George Washington was the most influential man in Virginia, if not the entire continent, went on the attack. At Virginia's ratifying convention, he was highly alarmed at the shift from a confederation. The fate of this question and of America may depend on this. Have they been said, we, the states? Have they made a proposal of a compact between states? If they had, this would be a confederation. It is otherwise most clearly a consolidated government. The question turns, sir, on that poor little thing, the expression, we, the people, instead of the states of America. I need not take much pains to show that the principles of this system are extremely pernicious, impolitic, and dangerous. Here is a revolution as radical as that which separated us from Great Britain. It is radical in this transition. Our rights and privileges are endangered, and the sovereignty of the states will be relinquished. And cannot we plainly see that this is actually the case? Henry, like many of his contemporaries, believed that such a change would threaten the unalienable rights of the people. Henry, then demolished the idea that just because eight states had already approved ratification before the Virginia debate that somehow made the Constitution more palatable. Freedom was the most important issue, not consensus. 
It is said eight states have adopted this plan. I declare that if twelve states and a half had adopted it, I would, with manly firmness and in spite of an erring world, reject it. You are not to inquire how your trade may be increased, nor how you are to become a great and powerful people, but how your liberties can be secured. For liberty ought to be the direct end of your government. Is it necessary for your liberty that you should abandon those great rights by the adoption of this system? Is the relinquishment of the trial by jury and the liberty of the press necessary for your liberty? Will the abandonment of your most sacred rights tend to the security of your liberty? Liberty, the greatest of all earthly blessings, give us that precious jewel, and you may take everything else. Many of those in favor of the Constitution argued that the Articles of Confederation were too weak and a federal government with more robust energy was necessary. Henry countered that the Articles of Confederation had served the country well by winning the American Revolution, and that energy in a central, consolidated government representing the people, as opposed to the states, was fatal to liberty. States were an indispensable hedge against oppression from the central government. The American spirit has fled from hence. It has gone to regions where it has never been expected. It has gone to the people of France in search of a splendid government, a strong, energetic government. Shall we imitate the example of those nations who have gone from a simple to a splendid government? Are those nations more worthy of our imitation? Now, sir, the American spirit— assisted by the ropes and chains of consolidation, is about to convert this country to a powerful and mighty empire. If you make the citizens of this country agree to become the subjects of one great consolidated empire of America, your government will not have sufficient energy to keep them together. Such a government is incompatible with the genius of republicanism. There will be no checks, no real balances in this government. What can avail your specious imaginary balances, your rope-dancing, chain-rattling, ridiculous ideal checks and contrivances? Patrick Henry's eloquence was amazing, but it was not enough. With regard to the issue of establishing a government on the basis of people versus a confederation of states, Morris and Wilson's view would prevail. The people are the foundation of the government. Timothy Pickering, a former general during the American Revolution and a future Secretary of State under George Washington and John Adams, wrote a searing refutation of Henry's position. There is no need to fear the federal government, he posited, exactly because it represents the people. It is concluded that the power of calling out the militia ought to remain with the state legislatures. But who are they? the servants of the people, chosen by them to superintend their local concerns of their particular states. And who are the Congress? Can you give a different answer? Are they not also the servants of the people, chosen by them to superintend their general concerns to the United States? Only bear always in your mind, sir, that the inhabitants of the United States are but one people, one nation, 
and all fears and jealousies about the annihilation of the state governments will vanish. Some men pride themselves in the particular state sovereignties and are extremely jealous that the general government of the United States will swallow them up. Ridiculous! Do not the people constitute the states? Are not the people the fountain of all power? And whether this flow in 13 distinct streams or in one larger stream with 13 branches, is not the fountain still the same and the majesty of the people undiminished? Alexander Hamilton makes the same argument in Federalist Paper Number 22. The Federalist Papers were written by Hamilton, James Madison, and John Jay and advocated for the adoption of the Constitution. They were widely distributed and very influential in assisting with the ratification of the Constitution. Instead of trying to downplay Henry's critique, Edmund Randolph, the current governor of Virginia and future attorney general and second secretary of state of the United States, turned Henry's argument against him. It is much better to have a federal government based on the people than a confederation under the Articles of Confederation. Mr. Patrick Henry inquires why we assume the language of we the people. I ask, why not? The government is for the people, and the misfortune of the Articles of Confederation was that the people had no agency in the government before. What harm is there in consulting the people on the construction of a government by which they are to be bound? Is it unfair? If the government is to be binding on the people, are not the people the proper persons to examine its merits or defects? I take this to be one of the last and most trivial objections that will be made to the Constitution. It carries the answer with itself. Madison was also at the Virginia Ratifying Convention. Although he was very soft-spoken, he was not going to be silent, and his soft voice carried a heavy effect. Madison explained that Henry was mischaracterizing the way the Constitution actually works. The people are indeed the base of the Constitution, but the people are also acting through the states. This was a unique system, unparalleled in the annals of history. This system is sometimes referred to as dual sovereignty, but this misapprehends the system. In Federalist Paper Number 46, Madison explains that the people are the ultimate sovereign, and they can delegate their authority as they please. By creating the states and the federal government, each serving different purposes, this will better protect freedom than vesting all authority in one form of government. Moreover, both the federal government and the states are accountable to the people. The federal and state governments are, in fact, but different agents and trustees of the people constituted with different powers and designed for different purposes. The adversaries to the Constitution seem to have lost sight of the people altogether in their reasonings on this subject, and to have viewed these different establishments not only as mutual rivals and enemies, 
but as uncontrolled by common, superior in their efforts to usurp the authorities of each other, the ultimate authority, wherever the derivative may be found, resides in the people alone. Madison explains with greater clarity than anyone else what is accomplished by the Constitution. The foundation of the federal government and the states both rest on the people. The people created a system of dual governments. First, states address local concerns. Second, the federal government addresses national and international concerns. As we will learn, the Constitution recognizes the importance of the states. The people of the states elect the House of Representatives. Under the original Constitution, the state legislatures elected the Senate. States choose electors who in turn elect the President. The Senate and President appoint the Supreme Court. All powers not expressly given the federal government remain with the states. Madison, with strong assists from others, crushed Henry's arguments. Resistance was futile. As we will explore in future episodes, by requiring local concerns to be addressed by locally accountable officials and national concerns to be addressed by federal officials accountable to the people, the social compact is substantially strengthened. Likewise, by limiting the authority of the federal government to specifically delineated powers, the federal government is limited. The genius of the system better embodies the first principles of the social compact and limited government and consequently the protection of unalienable rights, than any government in the course of human history. Some key takeaways from this episode. The preamble briefly introduces the purpose of the Constitution. Despite having no legal effect per se, it reflects the fundamental transformation away from the Articles of Confederation, which was a confederation of states, to a federal government that is based on the people. By dividing power between the people of the states and the federal government, the Constitution is the strongest form of government in history to embody the social compact and limited government and best protect unalienable rights. Join us next time when we complete our exploration of the preamble. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide. Our other two fabulous patriot narrators are Mike Gerard Skinechny, who is our sound designer and Patriot Week's video content producer, and bombastic Brent Bassett, a premier Patriot Week volunteer. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org to learn more about America's first principles, key documents and speeches, founding fathers and other great patriots, and flags from our history, along with the fantastic resources we have to offer. Our fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Until next time. God bless you, and God bless America. Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at PatriotWeek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. 
Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.